Welcome to the Rise and Resilience of Populism in Eastern Europe. I'm Tsveta Petrova, lecturer in the Political Science Department at Columbia University. With this interview series, we seek to popularize academic research on contemporary European populism. Over the past decade, a number of European populist parties have become increasingly competitive in key votes. And in Eastern Europe, some of these parties have not only come to power, but remained in office in consecutive elections. So in the interviews for this series, we seek to interrogate some of the main drivers and impacts of populist mobilization in Eastern Europe. The series is hosted by the European Institute at Columbia and made possible with the support of the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission's support for this series, however, does not constitute an endorsement of its contents, which reflect the views of the interviewer and interviewees alone. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Maria Sneguvaya. Hello. She received her PhD in political science from Columbia University. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech. She's also a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. The key focus of Dr. Sneguvaya's research is the democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe, as well as Russia's domestic and foreign policy. Her research has appeared in policy and peer-reviewed journals, including West European Politics, Party Politics, Journal of Democracy, and Post-Soviet Affairs. Her work has also been cited in publications such as the New York Times, Bloomberg, The Economist, Foreign Policy, and the Washington Post political science blog, The Monkey Cage. Hello. Thanks a lot for having me, Tieta. It's a big honor. So when discussing populist parties, um, those are often grouped or equated with other parties that are labeled as radical right, anti-immigrant, nationalist, authoritarian, anti-establishment, anti-system or protest parties. How do you define populism? For you, is populism an ideology, a mobilization strategy or a type of rhetoric? Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Tveta. We in political science uh, always uh, struggle with uh, defining concepts, especially when they are so fluid and there are so many takes on them uh, as uh, there are on populism. Uh, but for me personally, uh, I actually tend to believe that in the recent years, there is some consensus uh, shaping around the notion of populism. An increasing number of scholars adopt uh, the approach to populist parties is a thin ideology uh, that primarily uh, is defined through its understanding of politics as a Manichaean struggle between um, the two elements that constitute society. The people understood as homogenous entity and the virtuous group and uh, the opposite of it, evil uh, elites, usually described as corrupt, uh, malevolent, self-serving, conspiring, and essentially in different ways, uh, trying to hurt the good uh, people. Uh, the other constituent element of uh, populism is uh, uh, that it focuses on uh, divisiveness in the sense that it actually imagines this conflict uh, between this homogenous group of people with uh, uh, the elite. And as a thin ideology, this uh, populist, um, Kind of style can be combined with uh, right-leaning or uh, left-leaning ideologies. That's why we usually think 
of uh, populist parties on the right and on the left side of the political uh, spectrum. It's also kind of usually, usually easier to define a concept in a as, a, as opposed to something that's different from it. Uh, so in political science, we think of the opposites of populism, uh, such concepts as elitism, or such ideologies as elitism, that uh, an approach that deems that elites uh, are good, uh, meritocracy, for example, one of such approaches, or pluralism, uh, which makes the emphasis on heterogeneous mix of different groups and individuals in the society, rather than imagining them as one, um, one homogenous whole. So to summarize, you noted the anti-establishment, the moralist and the monist ideological elements of populism as its defining features. In other words, populist depicts society as divided into two antagonistic groups, people and elites. That's the anti-establishment element. And then this opposition is further defined as an opposition of the corrupt elite versus the pure people, which That's is a moral claim. And finally, the monist elements are rooted in the insistence that both these groups are homogenous and that only populists represent the people and thus the populist rejection of the legitimacy of political opponents. Now, given this definition, which movements in Eastern Europe today do you see as populist? Uh, there's actually a number of uh, movements in uh, Europe, Central Eastern Europe especially, which adopt this language. And as I mentioned before, is a thin ideology. Uh, this approach is combined with both right-leaning and left-leaning um, approaches or parties. Uh, but specifically in the context of Central Europe, usually we focus on uh, the populist right uh, parties. These are the parties that usually combine this uh, populist uh, approach with uh, also the uh, nativist elements. So um, uh, uh, a concept uh, that holds that states should be inhabited exclusively uh, by members of the native group and that non-native elements personages are fundamentally threatening uh, to homo homogenous nation states. Uh, usually these parties also are social cultural conservatives. Uh, so they emphasize uh, importance of tradition, uh, pre preservance of uh, uh, traditional values in a given society and uh, restraint of actors or actions uh, that might disrupt this, solid this imagined solidarity of this uh, traditional order uh, that they tend to defend. Uh, but at the same time, uh, a growing number of scholars uh, would, for example, also uh, point out a different types of group. So when we talk of this right-leaning uh, populist parties, the key usual examples that comes to mind would be uh, Fidesz, uh, of course, with Viktor Orban in Hungary, and law and justice in Poland. So what developments in the region do you see as having facilitated the rise and the electoral success of these movements? Your research has focused on the understanding the evolution of the party systems in Eastern Europe. So could you highlight for us some of the main transformations of these systems, um, some of the critical junctures and trends that have defined these transformations? I mean, there's no lack of explanations, uh, let me assure you, uh, primarily because the region uh, in the last uh, several decades has gone through really major transformations. Uh, typically, uh, we talk of at least uh, so-called triple transition. Uh, the one political, uh, the second one economic, and the third one the nation. So political transition is uh, 
transition from autocratic, non-democratic societies to democracies as a result of the collapse of the communist system in late 1980s, um, uh, which created uh, democratic, democratic political systems in the region. The second, arguably the most painful uh, type of transition is the economic uh, transition from regulated command economies to more pro-market uh, capitalist uh, societies that we have today in the region. And that uh, transition was, of course, particularly painful uh, for many countries in the region. The third one uh, is the so-called national transition from, a country, uh, from the countries which were mainly the part of the communist bloc, systems which were primarily imposed on them outside uh, following the Second World War. Uh, the countries actually received the chance to create their own nationhood, uh, their own uh, nation. And in this sense, we often think uh, of uh, national democratic movements uh, that actually uh, made this uh, transition possible. But uh, the combination of this uh, three different transitions certainly contributed to complete uh, to serious changes in the societies that often were quite stressful. Uh, for these countries and inevitably, inevitably led uh, to some kind of backlash. Um, there's all kind of literature on the topic and uh, one of the recent books, uh, for example, Crustive and Holmes, The Light That Failed, uh, that talks about how this original kind of infatuation uh, with integration with the West, adoption of Western political and economic systems, was eventually replaced by some kind of disenchantment. And to me, uh, personally, I view uh, the rise of populism, at least partly, being driven by this growing frustration uh, with, the, with the outcomes of the transition. And as a scholar, not just of uh, uh, post-communist uh, countries, but also Russia, I actually see a lot of parallels in the, the factors that underline the rise of, say, political politicians like Viktor Orban to power, and also success of politicians like Vladimir Putin, even if, of course, uh, there is tremendous number of differences between them. But it's also um, important to keep in mind uh, that these uh, democracies that, is, uh, that emerged in the region are very new. And in this sense, um, uh, there's a lot of factors in these countries that contributed uh, to uh, the rise of these um, actors, liberal uh, actors. Uh, so specifically, uh, lower levels of institutionalization, volatility, and vulnerability of new societies allow, of course, political actors to concentrate uh, power easily. Uh, the second uh, element is also very weak partisan attachments uh, uh, in the region. And in this sense, um, I, for example, in some of the works uh, with Sherry Berman, we show parallels between Western Europe and uh, Eastern Europe in the rise of populists. But one of the reasons why we see that this uh, trend has taken much larger scale in many, in several, at least post-communist countries, uh, has to do with the fact that the, this democratic systems uh, have lower levels of institutionalization and uh, part, uh, low levels of partisanship, low levels of weak, weak party attachments. Uh, this leads to the uh, reality when uh, borders actually do not uh, stick when uh, one particular party for more than a couple, one or two electoral rounds, and they easily swayed away uh, to uh, other uh, party, which leads essentially to um, higher volatility. Populist actors definitely used uh, this phenomenon, used this uh, quality of this 
uh, political systems, um, especially by offering all kinds of promises to their electorates in an effort to uh, essentially establish uh, their support. So while that's one also one additional factor that explains uh, why this essentially popular swing uh, has been much more pronounced in post-communist region than, for example, uh, in Western, Western Europe. Could you elaborate a little bit on this growing disenchantment with the economic reforms that were carried out in the post-transition period? Um, this disenchantment with neoliberalism is socially constructed in a different way in different countries. So what does it mean to the citizens in the post-communist region in the context of this triple transition that you talked about? Uh, I actually tend to think of uh, one of the key uh, factors uh, and often neglected uh, by scholars, uh, the key factors that explain uh, the rise of populist parties, specifically uh, the frustration with economic um, transition, specifically the way, particular way in which it has been done. So we certainly know that economic transition from command regulated economy to more uh, capitalist economy is extremely painful. It's, it's very disruptive uh, for people's traditional lifestyle. It essentially takes uh, completely uh, destroys uh, the way the traditional lifestyle, the way they view their future, uh, since life has been very regulated and quite predictable in the communist systems. And essentially throwing them into uh, the realities of the market economy, where uh, there is no stability, there's no, there's little predictability, and you have to adjust. Uh, you have to be innovative, or you have to be creative, and you have to sort of change uh, a lot of things about uh, the way things are. But uh, many societies in post-communist Europe, of course, were prepared uh, to this transition. They wanted uh, to integrate with the West. The West was considered as this. Uh, uh, um, kind of example, the ideal uh, that they wanted to follow. What they did not realize, unfortunately, is that it was going to take much longer uh, to get uh, to uh, this ideal than they originally imagined. And um, a lot of the societies, at least early on, were ready to experience some kind of unpleasant, uh, um, uh, um, un 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 to, to undergo some painful reforms. We actually see that ironically uh, in the societies that are more uh, the indexes of democratization, early democratization, the success of democratization strongly correlates with the success of the economic reforms in post communist region. Uh, that is contrary to common expectations that democracy would in democracy reforms would be blocked uh, by uh, reform losers. Early on, we see that uh, societies are very united on that um, in the embrace of reforms and those societies. Uh, actually, that are more uh, united around political reforms. They are also the same societies that tend to embrace economic reforms, usually Central uh, European societies, uh, followed by Baltics. And uh, uh, then the post-Soviet space actually lags way behind. So early on, that was uh, felt as a great idea. Uh, but one thing that uh, was neglected is specifically this problem of reform losers. Uh, many scholars on the topic expected that reform losers, the social groups that were uh, to lose more from the reforms, so usually people in economically vulnerable uh, positions, lower education, uh, those groups that are unlikely to easily find their uh, positions in the new market economy, especially given that a lot of former communist uh, factories and plants were closed as a result of the uh, reforms that were not needed in the new market economy. Those social groups were expected to block reforms early on. And that, uh, to a large surprise of uh, many observers, really did not happen. 
one fact, reason some of the early findings is that the reforms were blocked by the winners of these reforms instead the rather than the losers yeah Precisely that. So how what happens with the losers? So, what happened? so the reason why the losers uh, were unable to do anything to block the reforms were twofold. Uh, the first reason was uh, the first the, everyone embraced the reforms. Everyone wanted to the countries to integrate uh, quicker uh, with the Western uh, European society. But the second reason was that the parties that um, uh, typically represent the losers, usually uh, social democratic parties, so um, ex-communist parties in the context of post-communist Europe, uh, these parties also embraced the reforms and uh, very actively pushed uh, these reforms forward. As a matter of fact, in uh, countries like Hungary or Poland, uh, social democratic parties reformed or rebranded uh, ex-communist uh, parties, they were actually if often more uh, stronger reformers than right-wing parties even. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a number of articles that show that. And as a result, uh, the so-called reform losers, this groups were expected to lose from transition, actually had nowhere uh, to go. There was no representation for them. The society so strongly embraced the reforms and the parties were so eager to get their countries into European Union, which was this key benchmark of success of the reforms. Uh, there was just uh, not significant representation of uh, reform losers in the parliament. Uh, we see that consistency essentially, if you track, if you track the early uh, elections uh, in Poland, uh, especially, or Hungary, you see that uh, parties that claim to represent the interests of reform losers, commonly Solidarity Party, for example, in Poland, uh, they promise to come to, uh, to power or, or Democratic Left Alliance also in Poland. They always promise to come to power and protect the interests of these groups. But they come to power uh, and they continue the reforms uh, because that's what was needed at the time. And this situation uh, continued until uh, the EU accession. And to me, uh, this uh, serves a very important, uh, again, uh, kind of point threshold, uh, which is commonly observed in the literature. Until uh, the accession, uh, these parties, um, populist leaning parties, which would typically represent uh, reform losers, essentially they had no incentives to embrace this agenda because everyone was um, eager to get their countries into the EU. There was this race to get there first and to comply with the EU conditionality to the best of their capacity. So how do we get from this lack of representation and general disenchantment with neoliberal economic reforms to then the rise of populism in Eastern Europe? What happens after the session? Uh, precisely. Uh, excellent question. So once, uh, but once uh, the EU accession neared, usually uh, there already were indicators that the countries were able to comply uh, with the EU conditionality and so uh, the incentives to uh, comply with more um, uh, requirements imposed by the EU and continue reforms, uh, these incentives decrease, uh, primarily because there is uh, already, the goal essentially is achieved, uh, so there's no longer need for, you know, to keep imposing the pain on the social groups. There is also growing fatigue of the societies with this incessant uh, number of reforms that they keep going and doing uh, more and more. And that there is growing uh, pressure from the um, this reform losers that finally start essentially uh, uniting and uh, essentially demanding representation. Uh, this in Central European context is also reinforced uh, by the fact that uh, early on uh, during the early reform process, countries like Hungary, for example, preserved some original welfare arrangements in order to protect the societies from the painful reforms. But the EU conditionality uh, and complying uh, with the 
multiple de demands, uh, specifically EU Maastricht criteria, we required to cut down welfare spending and reform labor market, which was actually put additional strain on the societies that were already for 10 years in a row implementing painful reforms and essentially seeing no end in sight. Yeah. All of that uh, in the end contributed to this growing pressure to eventually uh, to represent uh, the reform losers. And this we'll see that around the time of the EU accession, parties uh, in the political system finally start responding uh, to these demands. Uh, we see that happening in Poland uh, with law and justice uh, emerging uh, around um, in uh, the first part of the uh, 2000s as a party that represents this interest. Very interestingly in Hungary, Fidesz, which actually itself was a party that drew uh, pro-EU reforms, suddenly also becomes more Eurosceptics Eurosceptic and starts adopting also these populist populist tones at first, not very, uh, not embracing the full, not going full blown populist yet, but certainly mm -hmm. already becoming increasingly skeptical about around the EU, more protective of mm -hmm. the people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, uh, this situation continues significantly worsened by the 2008 crisis, which further leads uh, disenchantment with um, the reforms. Uh, the problem with 2008, it's somewhat ironic uh, because countries which reformed more, which did everything pretty much which was asked uh, from them by the EU and essentially pushed, uh, essentially imposed this cost on the population, those were um, precisely the countries that were hit more uh, by the financial crisis. Mitch um, Lorenstein, for example, makes a great point about that. Uh, that was ironic, but that was the reality of the markets. If you embrace the market reform more fully, then it makes you more dependent on the fluctuation of the markets, especially foreign direct investment, which was essentially the key goal of uh, uh, these reforms. And 2008 financial crisis hits primarily the investment, uh, the uh, foreign investment leaves. Uh, hidden uh, the economies which already were uh, struggling uh, with undergoing multiple reforms even further. That in turn pushes even higher uh, frustration with the European Union, with the West. The point being, I mean, what, what, what was it all about, right? You were pushing us into doing all these great reforms. We did everything you taught us. And turns out you had no idea what you were doing yourself because here's the crisis. We are suffering more precisely because we did the reforms. And essentially there is no uh, path forward. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, in uh, post-communist Europe, there's also this um, uh, more, uh, the countries which were more successful reformers like Hungary or Poland also had a little bit of uh, independence in the sense that they were of the, Europe, of the Western European positions, in the sense that they knew they were doing quite well, there was a lot of reliance on uh, and belief in their own political forces. In some ways, it's actually a lot, uh, facilitated uh, the um, the um, actions of law and justice and Fidesz, uh, because there was actually less reliance on uh, the European Union at that time. There was less belief in the European Union and understanding that the old political systems could essentially, perhaps their own parties could come up with better recipes uh, than the ones prescribed by the, uh, by the West. Mm -hmm. All of these combined effects contributed to the strong backlash against uh, neoliberalism that we start seeing in 2010 is Victor Orban and Fidesz come to power in Hungary. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talked about voters and even the parties becoming more populist, you emphasize also the embrace of these parties on the right of certain socioeconomic policies, especially nationalism and xenophobia. 
And so I'm, I'm wondering um, what is the relationship of these cultural policies to the disenchantment with neoliberalism that you seem to emphasize. And again, in the literature on global populism, some pit economic and cultural drivers against one another as alternative explanations, but others see them as, as more complementary. What's your view? Yeah, I'm actually not in any way rejecting cultural explanation. I do think that many brainland scholars who make this point absolutely have a lot of reasons to do so. But I do believe that given all um, how painful economic transition was and how painful the 2008 financial crisis was, uh, economic explanations are always often unfairly forgotten. And it's very important to uh, bring them back uh, into picture, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Second of all, as exactly as you said, Sveta, there is uh, often a artificially uh, artificial separation drawn between cultural and economic um, explanation while more often than not it's usually the case in social science those are uh, intertwined uh, together uh, specifically in the post-communist context um, um, this uh, plays out uh, post-communist context also has its own uh, kind of uh, idiosyncrasy so first of all as i said methodologically uh, separation between the economic and cultural um, issues are quite uh, is tricky. Uh, it's fairly known and established in the literature. Then periods of economic distress, um, crisis actually also drive uh, higher uh, levels of xenophobic sentiment, racism, and anger um, against other cultural groups. I mean, we are all we have a tendency to blame to find, find someone responsible for us, for our troubles, and more often than not, that someone who is our other, some, someone else who is not like us. So it's very natural for people, unfortunately, in those situations, not to, back, uh, to essentially attack uh, some other uh, groups. Uh, in particular, uh, economically vulnerable electorates, I specifically talk in my work primarily about working class electorates, uh, they also may be more likely to perceive uh, other ethnic groups, immigrants, as a threat uh, because very often lower skilled socioeconomic groups compete with immigrants for the same um, jobs. So in this sense, anti-immigration sentiment among working class electorates tends to be quite uh, intertwined with the economic considerations and it's unclear to what extent it's essentially xenophobia per se or there is also an economic aspect to it. Second um, point and specific for post-communist region, here uh, the refugee crisis of 2015 uh, that is often uh, bring up, brought up as an explanation for the rise of populism in Western Europe. Uh, in post-communist context, it doesn't work as well. First of all, as I said, uh, the rise of Fidesz, the rise of loyal justice, in Smer, even in Slovakia, they all precede uh, the 2015 by many, many years. Uh, second of all, the region often uh, supplies rather than accepts immigrants. So we know quite uh, well that the uh, immigration from Western Europe in uh, Western European societies is actually um, quite, has a, quite a significant uh, degree. And fewer immigrants uh, for, for Middle East, for example, were willing to come to post-communist countries. So uh, the, um, it was um, 
a less of a problem for the societies in the first place. Of course, it did not prevent Fidesz, for example, from politicizing this issue, but it was less of an issue for post-communist region in the first place. So it's, it works worse, it doesn't work as well as an explanation for the rise of populism as it does in Western European context. And ultimately, uh, when it comes to levels of xenophobia, uh, levels of anti-immigration sentiment in the region uh, as explanations for, for, for the rise of populism, there is also a methodological problem here. Uh, these levels of uh, xenophobia, anti-immigration sentiment, they tend to stay fairly consistent in a given country for an extended period of time. At the same time, support for uh, populist parties throughout the same time fluctuates quite dramatically which suggests it, that it's not everything that's going on. So you can argue, for example, that salience of these issues for some reason increases during some periods. And my, this reason why it increases, for example, maybe an economic crisis, as I said before. Uh, so once again, uh, even looking at the overall levels of uh, xenophobia and anti-immigration sentiment in the societies, we do not see an immediate uh, correlation between um, the levels of the sentiment and the rise of populist parties. Is you oftentimes talk about voter demands and voter attitudes and expectations, and then the policies that parties apply. So which of those stories do you see as driving the rise of populism? Well, the reason why I like supply side stories is that to me, they're not purely about the positions of the parties, but they are about the parties seeing an opportunity, political uh, opening in a given political system and the political opening is created by the changing attitudes of the population, right? So it's actually bringing the demand side, the position of the electorates of the voters with the ability of the parties to jump in and kind of deliver. And from this perspective, that's precisely what happens uh, in uh, the past communist case uh, in light of this outline dynamic. First, there is this Washington consensus Everyone agrees on this for market reforms that they need to be embraced and supported. And at the time, there's no political opening for the parties, even if there is a already growing uh, group of reform losers, the electorates that are increasingly unhappy about uh, the economic policies uh, that are being implemented uh, in the country. But then after the EU accession is granted, there is an opening that emerges uh, on, uh, on the more protectionist, economically protectionist side of the political spectrum, because the EU uh, leverage now uh, is weaker and there is more reform losers and more unhappiness accumulated with the transition. And this is precisely when populist parties jump in and capitalize, uh, politicize uh, the sentiment um, in their own favor. So to clarify, again, you, this is a pretty structural explanation, meaning that you see um, a particular party landscape that creates an opening for the emergence of populist parties. Now, let's turn to the time period when these populist parties are ruling in Eastern Europe. How have they responded to the citizens' demands that brought them to power? So. Um... I actually uh, tend to, um, uh, to look at the package uh, that populists offered uh, once they were voted in uh, by their supporters. Um, from again, this, uh, from the perspective of this triple uh, transition. So the transition as we have discussed was uh, political and economic in nature. And to some extent, 
at least judging from Russia's perspective, but I think it's very similar to happen in Hungary as well, for example. The frustration also, uh, because the reforms kind of came all in together in package, uh, democracy and the economy, frustration with the reforms also was, uh, so the voters were not really very picky about, they were just not very happy with everything that was going on in the country and wanted something else. That I think is one of the reasons why we see uh, that uh, these populist parties that get voted, uh, voted to power, that they also offer a package of uh, new kind of system, what they describe as new. Uh, the package is simultaneously uh, less liberal when it comes to polit uh, democratic uh, reforms. So we know, for example, Orban's uh, famous emphasis on illiberal democracy, right, intentionally. And at the same time, more economically protectionist. So these uh, parties uh, offer to protect the societies from these injustices, economic injustices imposed on them by international markets and the quote unquote exploitative uh, European Union. And uh, uh, they offer a simultaneous set of policies that open uh, attacking transnational corporations, um, banks, like all these international companies that allegedly exploit uh, their societies in combination with some protectionist measures, uh, such as, for example, targeted welfare spending. Often uh, this is combined with this more nativist ideologies of this right, especially if we talk about right wing uh, populists in power. So they often say that welfare should be increased, but only for the ones, the citizens that, that are deserving, for the real, the natives of the country, a concept that uh, has become known as welfare uh, chauvinism. Uh, on a broader set of this combination of policies, essentially uh, protecting or claiming to protect uh, the economies, the societies from these international influences, uh, they do not deliver but exploit the societies instead, also is increasingly uh, known as economically uh, protectionist uh, policies, uh, economic nationalism uh, as well, and essentially I think the literature about the best way, the best term uh, to come up for this sort of policies is emerging, but uh, the idea is essentially to protect uh, the social groups from uh, these malevolent um, actors, and at the same time to make the democracy less liberal. So a dual kind of response to the political and economic processes that were happening in the societies. Okay, my final question to you today. What challenges to populist movements in the region do you see as lying ahead? You spoke about the weak party attachments of Eastern European voters. Do those pose a threat to populist rule? Um, and what about possible economic shocks since your main explanation was an economic one? For example, the COVID-19 pandemic has dealt an economic blow on these countries as it has worldwide. Has it destabilized those governments? Um, this is a very interesting and important question, Sveta. I will just remind that, um, fortunately, political scientists are horrible in predictions. Uh, but so it's probably, whatever I say is probably not going to come true. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's certain patterns that we already see um, when we analyze how these populist actors behave when in power. Uh, the first element is they're incredibly opportunistic. So they will say one thing, they will offer all kind of uh, positions uh, when uh, in power, uh, but when they come, when they run for the uh, in the election, but when in power, they will actually uh, 
do whatever fits uh, the current interests uh, the, uh, better. So pandemic specifically is a great example, since here we see all sort of responses from uh, different po populist uh, parties in power. So uh, those of them who find themselves in a um, position to, for example, uh, use pandemics to concentrate more authority, certainly attempted uh, to do so. So in five of uh, 12 uh, populist parties in power adopted quite illiberal uh, responses, for example, in Poland, in Hungary, we saw that these parties tried to concentrate more authority. Uh, in other instances, when, uh, for example, for for some reason, for economic reasons, they, they cannot uh, impose a very strict lockdown because the economy already is not doing very well. In those instances, the reforms, the response will be more liberal, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite opportunistic that they tend to um, actually deliver a, a more, more redistributive policies, at least to their uh, deserving population. And uh, the electorates uh, actually appreciate that uh, those social groups uh, who find that the economy is improving under, um, uh, under the rule of these uh, populist actors. And uh, those groups find that these policies are the right way to go forward. Those are precisely the group who will continue voting for these parties in power, which is honestly, this is the way democracy is supposed uh, to work. Uh, there's a recent paper that actually also shows that uh, populist voters are, if anything, more active uh, than voters of conventional mainstream parties. So in this sense, these are quite conventional uh, democratic voters, even if they often support illiberal and maybe not very democratic policies of their parties. When it comes to, so given this opportunistic nature of populists, it's easier to imagine, and we certainly saw that on the example of Hungary and to some extent Poland, that it's not easy uh, to honestly to vote them out just because they are quite adept and apt at using any opportunity in their own favor, especially Viktor Orban described this often, described the political animal. He's extremely good in um, essentially turning anything, any crisis, any opportunity in his favor. But there is uh, two ways in which um, essentially there is a chance for uh, uh, for con conventionally mainstream established parties to regain uh, ground. Uh, so first of all, um, the very emergence of populism, as I have described uh, to a large extent, is a consequence of the failure of the political establishment. It's a crisis of existing political systems. We see that these parties emerge when mainstream parties do not deliver for some reason. So on this, from this perspective, uh, one way uh, to fight, um, um, uh, to counter these groups is essentially uh, to, um, to deliver for the mainstream parties to be more responsive to the demands of the groups, to try and offer more perhaps less conventional policies, uh, to, to essentially to listen better to the demands of the people rather than uh, perhaps following some recipes and prescriptions that do not always work. So essentially, in some ways, the recipe is to follow populists, to become in some ways more responsive uh, to the needs of uh, uh, the people. And second uh, finding that is also um, uh, consistent uh, in the literature is, as I said before, to a large extent, the rise of um, populism is driven by frustration by the reforms in the EU. Uh, Euroscepticism is one of the key uh, factors beyond uh, support for this partisan. And again, uh, to some extent, we also have a similar finding in our paper uh, together. And from this perspective, uh, Euroscepticism also is a factor that tends to be quite uh, uh, volatile, uh, changes quite often. And uh, um, 
if there's a chance uh, that the EU, through again some kind of modification of the policies, will be able to win back uh, the trust of uh, the new uh, countries in the future. So mm -hmm. from this perspective, uh, there is a chance that as the Eurosceptics, uh, the the peak of Eurosceptics decrease, is um, the frustration of um, the transition sort of slightly uh, subsides. Uh, there will be again more opportunities for conventional established parties to gain uh, more ground, especially as the societies grow uh, more tired from populists, their rule or constant corruption scandals, and of sort of unpleasant things that are often associated to the role of these parties. So the responsiveness you spoke about is primarily in terms of economic policy. And then the alignment between Eastern European support for the EU you see as more an opportunity for the EU to correct some of its democratic deficit, to increase support by delivering in economic terms, rather than um, as a burden on the mainstream Eastern European parties to take a different stance on the Oh, I think actually it's both. Um, uh, yeah, I certainly think it's both. And I think that uh, uh, post-communist parties should certainly also try and deliver. So we'll just uh, give one example. When I was doing my field work in Hungary, I actually had a chance to talk to uh, social democrats and right after I had an interview scheduled with a representative of Jobbik, uh, another even far right populist party in Hungary. And uh, um, so the thing that struck me uh, at the meeting with um, the uh, left wing representatives of the left parties is that they absolutely had no uh, knowledge of English and they, the translation was also not very good. Uh, though actually kind of you could see them as being representative of this, you know, late communist reformers, essentially, who continued uh, for, uh, uh, staying with the party for many, many decades later. Jobbik, mm -hmm. by contrast, the representative of Jobbik was extremely well-educated, got some um, high uh, master's degree from one of the um, Western European University. Excellent English. English was actually much better than mine. <laughs> and uh, absolutely knew how to talk to me, so to speak. It knew how exactly talk to someone from uh, the United States, essentially uh, speaking the same language, even if, uh, of course, with this, maybe perhaps some different uh, re, uh, kind of goals uh, in mind. And that to me until now, essentially, is the picture that I have in my head, sort of showed why Jobbik was at the time such a successful party, as opposed to, for example, uh, Social Democratic Party, which was not doing as well. Uh, just because the political elites are much more in tune with the new changes uh, that were happening in the societies domestically and internationally, while other political elites were not, and therefore they were losing ground. So from this perspective, I think the responsibility is, of course, always on uh, the domestic parties primarily, but there is, of course, also the role of the international institutions. I think there is a lot of uh, the EU could have changed um, now, particularly given that we have all this experience that will limit uh, the opportunities for uh, political, uh, for populist parties in the future. Dr. Snigvai, thank you for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation on the supply side of the rise of populism in Eastern Europe. And we certainly look forward to your upcoming book on this topic. It's titled When Left Moves Right, The Decline of the Left and the Rise of the Populist Right in Post-Communist Eastern Europe. This was the rise and resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. Special thanks to our audience for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our future interviews as well. For those and for other events sponsored by the European Institute at Columbia, 
please visit the Institute's website, europe.columbia.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Columbia Europe.